Last week, we began God's Top 10. It's a series on the Ten Commandments. God's Top 10, it's about relationship, by relationship. Now, many of us view the Ten Commandments in the negative. It's the thou shalt nots. We think that they were given to us by a distant, stern father living way up in heaven somewhere who says, find out what they're doing for fun and make them stop. We think that fear is the rule, we, to fear God, the fear of consequences of our actions, fear that we're gonna somehow have to stop having fun. For those reasons, we fear making contact with God. The atheist who does not believe in God lives in fear that whatever happens in his life, he's basically on his own. The Christian lives in fear of making God angry by breaking his rules. So we all live in fear when really we should be filled with hope, not fear when we're making contact with God. Why? Why? Because God initiated contact with us, not to punish us, but to love us, not to keep us in line, but so he could have a relationship with us. It's not about rules. It's about relationship. Relationship, and all of us desperately want to have a positive experience with God. Now, just to review, uh, those of you that, that weren't here, and just to review for everybody, in the last message, we saw how the Israelites prepared to make contact with God. We prepare to make contact with God in relationship, not in fear, in, in community, not isolation, in purity, and in, in, not in the ordinary, but in the special. We, we saw the difference between a contract relationship and a covenant relationship. The contract relationship says, if you give to me, I'll give to you. The covenant relationship says, I've already given to you. God says, I've already given to you. Just receive the gift of love and return obedience. The 10 commandments are part of a covenant, a covenant relationship. The Ten Commandments lay down the parameters for how to relate correctly to this awesome God who has already extended himself to us. Now this message is entitled, God Comes First. God Comes First. The first commandment, and I'd like us to look at the text of the first commandment. It's Exodus 20, the first three verses on page 60, if you want to look at it in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Page 60, Exodus 20. Exodus 20, verse 1 to 3. Let's read it. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Before we address the specific of this text, I'd like to lay some additional groundwork about the, the why the law. Why, why was the law given? Why the Ten Commandments? And I want us to look, first of all, at the three functions of the law. Now, there's no Roman numeron, the three functions of the law. The law included the Ten Commandments, which were foundational, included a lot more. But the Ten Commandments was the foundation that he laid before he gave anything else. And we find that the first function of the law was to, number one, letter A, regulate relationships. To regulate relationships. There is no way to have a meaningful relationship with another person unless there are guidelines given of proper relating, okay? In other words, a two-year-old can re relate to his peers by hitting them, okay? A two-year-old might relate to his peers by hitting them. We establish guidelines for that relationship and we tell our two-year-old, don't hit. What are we saying? We're saying hitting is not good for a relationship, okay? 
something we all learn. Hopefully we learn it at two and, and carry it out the rest of our lives. See, there are accepted norms for interpersonal relationships in every culture. And sometimes they're written, sometimes they're not written. Sometimes they're just learned behaviors. In some cultures, men greet one another by kissing them on both cheeks, okay? Or they greet one another by shaking hands. And of course, shaking of hands originated in ancient times when extending your hand without something in it showed that I, I don't intend you harm because I don't have a weapon in my hand, so I'm going to shake your hand, okay? That was how this all originated. Um, now we just kind of fist bump or high five or there are different ways that we greet one another, but there are kind of norms. And if you, if you come up and you're going to shake hands and they're ready to give a high five, it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't work very well. It's a little awkward. But, but that's, that's kind of what, what we do. Um, Scandinavians, of course, will just wave. They don't shake hands or anything. Um, interpersonal space. My wife doesn't like my jokes. Okay, that's okay. <laughs> interpersonal space is different also in every culture. If you go to Great Britain, the average distance I've read, the average distance one keeps when speaking face-to-face -face in Great Britain is about four feet. And if you're speaking with somebody in Great Britain, if you move closer, they will back up because they want to keep that interpersonal space of about four feet. Some cultures will speak almost nose to nose and they feel fine about that, okay? And it differs from cultures, it differs from families, but there are certain standard things that make interpersonal relationships work or not work. There are also written guidelines, which we're gonna see, which are universal and absolute. So the first function of law is to regulate relationships and establish parameters for a relationship. The second function of the law is to number, is letter B, is to maintain and protect community. Maintain and protect community. When we have more than just one other person to relate to, life becomes more complex. Isn't that true? More than one other person. One early remembrance I have of community participation was the behavior at school at the drinking fountain after recess. I don't know if you remember that. I mean, I was one of those kids, I just went out and gave it all, you know, at recess. I, I was always very, very thirsty. But when you came to the drinking fountain, there were guidelines, okay? They had to be ordered. You had to wait in line. Everyone had a certain time limit. And you could drink more only after everyone else had a drink. And Mrs. Moe, my teacher, was very strict in establishing those community guidelines. She, she said, this is how we operate. Why did we have guidelines? It was for the sake of community. It was for the sake of the group. I hate stoplights. How many of you hate stoplights? They, they interrupt your schedule. They just, you're going, you have to stop, okay. They interrupt my schedule. Why do we have stoplights? Why do we have stop signs? Why do we have speed limits? For order and community. Why do we have speed limits and lines on the road? I know some people don't follow those lines. I, I get really annoyed by that, but that's okay. Um, some people don't go fast enough, you know. I'm saying, you know, it says 35, you don't have to go 25, you know. So it's for community. This is all community. Why do we have those guidelines for community? I recently returned from a, a trip to Scotland in the UK, and in the UK they drive on the left side of the road. It's really weird at first. And fortunately, the, the guy I was with was the one driving, so I was, I was in that, that passenger seat. But everything's on the left. Now, they have something in the UK that we, we have a few of them around. They're called roundabouts. Roundabouts, okay? And roundabouts, uh, it, you know, if you're not used to it, you, you get in trouble. But basically, there are community rules 
to keep flow, the flow going. The rules to every roundabout, and sometimes they're clear, sometimes they're not so clear. But the rules, whether they're written or not, are there to maintain and protect the community. That's why we have those kinds of laws. The Ten Commandments, the law, maintains and protects community. community. Now, the third function of the law, letter C, is to guarantee justice. Guarantee justice. The law provides for justice for those who fail to keep the rules in the form of punishment, and it provides compensation for those who have been harmed by the failure of another person to keep the rules. And all the laws, all the rules are in place for one reason. It's to be relationship. It's relationship. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God, as we'll see. It's our vertical relationship. The first four, it's between us and God. The last six commandments deal with our relationship with other people. That's the horizontal plane. God's top ten, the ten commandments, were given by God to express the parameters of relationship. And God created everything, so he had the right to make the rules. Okay? And some people say, I don't like the rules. I'm sorry. Argue with God. God set up parameters, and they're in, in, in the set of ten primarily. God's top ten are how not to violate a relationship with God, and then how not to violate a relationship with our fellow human beings. Eight of the ten are expressed in the negative. You shall not. Okay, that's what a lot of people don't like that. It says, oh, it's always telling me what I not to do. Well, in a, in a practical sense, it's much easier to tell what we cannot do than when we can do what we can do. So eight of the ten are in the negative. Now, it helps my understanding when I'm looking at these relational parameters, the Ten Commandments, to compare them to the marriage relationship. Marriage has a whole set of relational parameters. Some are written, some are not. Some are understood, some are not very well understood. And if you're the husband, you're the, usually the one in the dark. But that's, that's another story. Um, the, there are some understanding of relationship parameters. And these rules or boundaries and param parameters bring freedom to the marriage relationship. Because if we follow them, we don't violate our marriage relationship or our partner's character. It makes the relationship better or good. In the same way, God's top ten are parameters of relationship with God in order to make the relationship better or good. By not violating God's character, we have an open, unhindered relationship. Everybody with me? Okay. I wanted to make sure I didn't lose anybody along the way. Okay. It's really not all that complicated. We have a vertical relationship and we have a horizontal relationship. If the relationship with God is in order, the rest fall nicely into place. Okay, it's really simple. I didn't say it was easy. It's just, it's just keep this in order and this will be in order as well. Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, um, said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He just sums it up. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love God first. He said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, love God. Love people. Okay. And he says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He, it, that sums it up very simply. But it's hard. Now the keeping of the law, God's top ten, is not an expression of legalism or fear. But it's an outgrowth of love for God. That's where we really get hung up. He says, I, do I have to? No, I get to. Knowing that anything else than, than this violates that relationship is an outward expression of the covenant 
relationship, which is a relationship of love. Now, just a note here, all 10 commandments are expressed in the second person singular. It is the singular you. The singular you, they were given to the community of Israel, but they were a call for individuals to keep these laws. Now, when you use the word you, it can mean y'all, which is, they use down south in Madison. Um, but, but you can be y'all, it can be a plural you or a singular you. But all of these commandments are in the singular you, calling individuals to keep the commands in the context of community with people. So those are the three functions of the law. Now let's look at number two. Let's look at this relationship expressed. This relationship expressed. Verse two says, I am the Lord your God, or another way to say it, I am your personal God. I am your personal God. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, not everyone in ancient times believed in one God, let alone a personal God. Most people saw the universe as wild and chaotic. It was a jungle out there. And in their worldview, the world was made up of powers that were fighting other powers, wind against water, sun against moon, male against female, life against death. They had gods of spring planting, they had gods of harvest, gods who put fish in fishermen's net, gods who took care of women in childbirth. They had gods that at times had an uneasy truce with each other and other times they were at war with each other. So they believed there were just many gods and it was this just chaotic environment out there, all the gods exercising their power. And Joy Davidman writes, now, along comes a fool from an insignificant tribe of desert wanderers and shouts that all these processes are one process from a single source, and the obvious many are the unthinkable one. That the universe was created and is overseen by one God? New concept, brand new concept. A single being, creator of heaven and earth, not to be bribed with golden images or children burned alive. Loving only righteousness, a being who demanded your whole heart. Wow, this was revolutionary. Now people today believe in many gods or my personal God, whoever he or she may be. And God says in his 10 commandments, I am your personal God. I have established relationship. I have demonstrated my grace and love. Now, how did he do that? Well, in this context, this was given when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. They had, God had delivered them from slavery. He had parted the Red Sea, taken them out. He was filling all their needs, giving them water and food and doing all that stuff, taking care of them. He had demonstrated that he loved them and wanted to be in relationship with them as a special people by the exodus experience that they had, they had just come through his redeeming them and delivering them from slavery. That is how he revealed himself. So how has God revealed himself to us today? Okay, how has God revealed himself to us today? Well, in Old Testament history, yeah, we can read the Old Testament history and there's a lot there, but he has revealed himself more recently and more accurately, more completely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, when Jesus came, he said, he said this, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus claimed not only to be God, but he claimed to be equal with God. He said, I am God. Anybody that doesn't believe that Jesus claimed to be deity uh, is naive. Jesus claimed to be God. He said, I am God. And God revealed himself in Jesus Christ. 
He's the one that became one of us, the most, uh, the incarnation, he became one of us. He moved into our neighborhood, came down so he could demonstrate. Not only would he demonstrate with his life, his love and relationships, his power and compassion, but he revealed that God's love for us by showing Jesus' willingness not only to serve, but also to die as a ransom. The Son of Man, Jesus said, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's through Jesus, that revelation of who God is, through Jesus we have redemption and deliverance. So the context in which these people receive these Ten Commandments and the context in which we receive these Ten Commandments is grace. It's unmerited favor. It's grace. It's not legalism. It's grace. And the interesting part is that that God already provided for the failure to keep the commandments perfectly. In other words, he knew we weren't going to be able to keep all the commandments perfectly, so Jesus died. He's already provided the that sacrifice and already provided that forgiveness. All we have to do is ask for forgiveness, receive that, and accept that. God has already extended himself in relationship to you and to me. Now, because of that relationship, he says to us as we come to number three, there's a condition given. Number three, a condition given. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. This was the first commandment. It's universal. It's a biblical absolute. It applies to all people for all times. It transcends times, cultures, seasons, all change, and it never ends. The call is for undivided allegiance, total commitment to this Yahweh universal God. He's not territorial. He's over the whole earth. The whole earth is mine, God says. And he says, there are to be no other gods before me. Now, that doesn't mean that as long as they're not as important as as him, it's not in order of importance, but no means no gods even before my face. So he's, I don't, you're going to have no other gods even before my face. It's not okay to have other gods as long as they're less important than me. There are not to be any gods anywhere in God's presence before his face. It's not in order of importance, but even before my face. This command includes thought, word, and deed. Ezekiel 14 says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. And, and back in the, in the original days, they had idols, but we have gods inside of us, in our thoughts, in our hearts. Our gods can be subtle. They can be hidden. They can be nearly invisible. No one knows. No one knows. These are not images. We're going to talk about images in the next message, but invisible gods include our thoughts, our affections, and attitudes. Maxie Dunham says there's a sense in which this first commandment is the greatest because it gives the motivating power for all the rest. Now, if I talk to you today and we, you go out to lunch or whatever, a few of us would ever confess to breaking this first commandment. That's a, that's a pretty big no-no. You wouldn't do that. But Martin Luther said this, whatever thy heart clings to relies upon That is properly thy God. A God is whatever a person looks to for all good things and runs to for help and trouble. So to have a God is just the same as sincerely trusting and believing in him. I'll ask you a series of questions. Just think about it for a moment. What brings you comfort? What brings you comfort? 
What do you rely upon to give you a sense of well-being? Okay. We're all about comfort and well-being. Comfort foods or comfort gods. All are designed to make us feel comfortable. What brings you the most meaning in life? What brings you the most meaning in life? Your, your husband, your wife, family or friends or your job or career path, power, prestige? Is it sports or music or technology or school? What brings us security? What brings us security? Family? Money? Retirement accounts? Getting out of debt? What do you love the most? What do you love the most? Most of our potential gods seem to be good things. They are just good things that become the main thing. Good things that become the main thing. Israel lived in a world of polytheism, many gods. Parts of our world still today practice polytheism. What about America? What about Christians in America? With some of us, the question is not, do I believe in one God against many, but do I believe in one God against none? One God against none. Do I believe in God, or, or is it atheism? The philosopher Nietzsche has been called the author of the God is Dead movement. You know, this was a few years back, and if you've seen anything, you've probably seen the movie God is Not Dead, which kind of went against that. But God is Dead. Nietzsche proposed that God was dead. And on one college campus, someone had scrawled this graffiti on the restroom wall. God is dead, and signed it Nietzsche. Underneath that, someone followed up and said, Nietzsche is dead, and signed it God. True story. Now, most of us would not declare ourselves to be atheists. In fact, we would avidly, avidly declare our belief in God, but the tragedy is that many of us make a clear choice for atheism without realizing it. Me, me and atheist? Oh, come on, I, I'm not an atheist. Joy Davidman in the book Smoke on the Mountain writes that we live as atheists not by clear conviction, but by vague drifting. Not by denying God, but by losing interest in him. This is practical atheism, believing in God in our minds, but living for all intents and purposes as if God does not exist, that God is irrelevant. The man who says one God and does not care is an atheist in his heart. Today the commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, must include thou shalt have me. Wow. Some are left in a vacuum without any God. In the absence of the one true God, they fill it with other gods. What are, what are the most common gods in America today? I'm just going to address six of them. There are many, and they're as numerable as our affections and thoughts and attitudes, but there are some predominant ones in America today. Six gods in America. Letter A, self. Self. Worshippers in the ancient days were at least worshiping something, not themselves. They usually made an image or, or some other god, and if, and if that if that idol didn't work, they'd make another one. You know, they, they would do that. But today, false gods are harder to see and define. Many times, the beast in the heart is the self. And Davidman says the modern monotheist is frequently adoring his own image in the mirror. Martin Luther says, People who put all their trust in their vast knowledge, brains, power, personal connections, family, relationships, and good name have a God too, but not the right God, not the only God. 
our God can be ourself. And, and we see our, our culture obsessed with body image or physical appearance. Our culture reflects that, that narcissism and it, it infiltrates the church as well. People go to church not to worship the one true God, but to meet their needs. To meet their needs. That's why when we talk about worship in our worship services, we encourage people to lay aside self-consciousness, which is really hard to do, but lay aside self-consciousness and replace it with God-consciousness. Because we're not here for ourselves. We're, we're here, yes, does God meet our needs? Yes, but we're here not to meet our needs. We are here to worship the one true God. That's why we gather together. God-consciousness, God is the center of our worship. It's not us, God comes first. The next God of America is sacrifice or cause. Sacrifice or cause. We all want to have a cause that's worth sacrificing for, so we find a cause, and it's a noble cause, whether it's feeding the hungry or clothing the poor, saving the whale, saving babies, saving people from uh, sex trafficking. We can, we can name all these causes, and some people, that's their focus. Many noble and righteous causes, but our cause should be the result of love for God, not a replacement for God should be the result of our love for God, not a replacement for God. And we see whole organizations, Christian organizations, we see whole churches, their whole focus is some kind of a cause, and God is somewhere on the periphery. That's idolatry. The third God in America is sex, sex. The last 30 years has brought us some astonishing developments I don't know if you remember the major clothing retail chain, Abercrombie and Fitch, that advertised their clothing. They did this whole advertising campaign in a catalog with photos of models without any clothes. They're trying to sell clothes, so they sell it with models without clothes. I, I don't know if there's a new twist on the emperor who had no clothes, but trying to sell clothes with nude models, it was bizarre. Maybe hoping people would rush out and buy clothes so they didn't look like those nymphs in the photos. I don't know. But it was a bizarre thing. It didn't last very long, by the way. So it must not have been successful. We have sex-crazed people on reality shows and on prime time. Sexual perversion and pornography are readily accessible to children via the internet. We have homosexuals demanding equal protection under the law for their perverted, immoral choice of lifestyle. Adults preying on young, innocent children. Most recently, the headlines are teachers preying on their students, men and women, a nation obsessed, just obsessed with sex. Then in our twisted mental moral state, we expel a six-year-old first grade boy from school for sexual harassment because he kissed a girl. How bizarre is that? Sex sells everything from cars to jeans, beer to Pepsi, swimsuits to websites. Sex is the first sin of the mind. Jesus says, if you look on a woman in lust, it is sin. Sex drives the media, has produced rampant immorality, perversion, adultery, marital breakups, STDs, AIDS, homosexuality, abortion on demand, teen pregnancy, out of wedlock births. Sex is portrayed as the meaning of life, the mystery of pleasure, and the impressionable youth just drink it all in. I'll never forget the sermon I heard as a young teenager. A preacher entitled the sermon, The Law of Diminishing Returns. The law of diminishing returns. The, the preacher spoke of the thrill of sin, of illicit sex. But he concluded, he talked about the fact that the returns always come back 
diminished. Loss of innocence, loss of respect, disappointment. Illicit sex never lives up to its expectation. I don't think this is in your notes, but Proverbs 7, 21 to 23. Proverbs 7, 21 to 23 says this. With persuasive words she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. The physical is meaningless without God's commitment. I have a couple studies here. I'm just going to try to summarize it a little bit because I don't have time to do it all. But a group called Proven Men Ministries commissioned the Barna Group to examine curtain pornography use. Because pornography, you know, just admit it, it is pervasive everywhere. It's, it's unbelievable. Barna found that 64% of American men and 20% of women viewed pornography at least monthly. And for Christian men, that was 55%. 14 years ago, only one out of every three men had ever gone to a pornography site. But now nearly one-third of men under 30 do so on a daily basis. And they found that at least 18% surveyed say they are addicted to pornography. More than half of Christian men in America routinely expose themselves to sexually explicit lies that shape the way they see sex, love, marriage, and women. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say there's a crisis for the church in our culture. One of the first things we realize is that rampant pornography use cannot be isolated from its larger context. So many of our social ills stem from the fact that society is losing or abandoning the ability to see people and no longer see people as beings that are made in the image of God. Just, it's not there. Lost the ability to do that. The Bible warns us many times that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. People's lives, eternal lives, are at stake including many who call themselves brother and sister each week in church. It's a serious issue. It'd be very unusual if there are not numbers of people here engaged in pornography. We've got to address the issue. It was very interesting. There's another study. I don't have time to, to go into it that deeply, but it talks about the reason many millennials leave the church today. Many think it's because of science or because of education or whatever. The University of Texas sociology professor Mark Regeneres did a study and released a new book called Cheap Sex, The Transformation of Men, Marriage, and Monogamy. He summarizes and says, cheap sex has a way of deadening religious impulses. In the recent hubbub over millennials leaving the church and identifying as spiritual but not religious, Regeneres thinks we haven't paid enough attention to how sexual practices, secular sexual practices, erode religious belief. He says it's not science that's secularizing Americans. He said it's sex. Dating outside the, the it just totally undermines the concept of what, what uh, relationships are all about. And it, people are leaving 
the church, many of them, because they've been impacted in a negative way. Regenerus's new research is a strong case that beliefs about God don't just shape our behavior. Quite often, it's our behavior shaping our beliefs about God. And as it turns out, that's especially true of with whom we choose to be yoked. Who do we choose to date? Who do we choose to be with? Next, let's look at God number four, the state, the state. Many people make the state or government their God. This entails looking to the government to provide all the answers to life's problems or challenges. And of course, when you're in a, in a, uh, a mode where there's all kinds of politics going on, everybody's campaigning, it's all government, all government. The answer to everything is to pass laws, enact legislation, dole out money. And what we need to say is for the government to run everything, socialism, no, what we need, they say, is for the government to just run everything. It's socialism or communism at worst. And it's been tried, the Soviet Union, Red China, North Korea. They rejected the God and they chose the state instead. Germany chose the state leading up to World War II and the Russians chose it during communism. The Chinese were forced to choose the state under Mao Zedong. And we make small choices every day. Are we choosing to place our trust in the state? If you're looking for the answers to our problems to come out of, out of Washington, D.C., or Madison, or some other part of the country, out of the political realm, it's not going to happen. That's not where we place our trust. It's got to be in God, not the state. doesn't mean we don't get engaged in the state and involved in the political process. What it means is we must not look to that as the answer. Letter E, Science. Science. Someone once said, only the ignorant and lazy call to God for help. We are intelligent. We'll figure it out. We'll solve our problems. We are co-workers with God. So what, what has science brought us? And I'm not against science. Science has some incredible things to teach us. Most amazingly, it, it confirms the, the character qualities of God the Creator. Joy Davidman says, yet our sciences are no more than tools to increase our power of getting whatever we already want. They are an extension of what happened when the first savage made the first club. And unless the supreme authority of God tells us how to use our new tools, we shall use them exactly as the savage used the club, to beat out our neighbor's brains. In other words, science will find a way to get our own way. We'll use it for our own ends. We think science or technology is the answer to everything. It's our God. It's not. Finally, there's society, society. Thou shalt serve the common good. It sounds good on the surface. The problem is that the common good has morphed into extremes. And this includes the tolerance movement, the tolerance movement. Chuck Colson wrote, and this was before he died, and I quote, said, tolerance originally meant allowing people whom you believe to be wrong to live according to their beliefs without fear of reprisal. It then mutated into the idea that all beliefs are equally valid. In other words, everybody, doesn't matter what you believe, yours is valid and mine's valid. While this was mistaken, at least it allowed for the possibility that Christians might publicly express their beliefs. Now, tolerance means that no one other than Christians should ever hear anything that contradicts what they think or otherwise upsets them. And this is especially true if the subject is human sexuality. Wow. And if you say anything 
against anybody with a different opinion, especially if it has to do with the sexual mores or whatever's happening out there in the culture. It's called hate speech. No, it's, it, it's an opinion. It's a closely held religious belief. And we are under attack severely for that. Tolerance and its twin political correctness has profoundly affected the millennial generation. They think it's awful to say anything that you disagree with, and whatever you say is, is fine. I, there, there's a friend of mine who is, is in charge of the Family Research Council branch in Washington, in the Washington State, and he went out to the University of Washington, and he wanted to find out how far they would go in these, in these uh, not, do not offend. So, so he asked uh, students on the campus, these are educated students on the University of Washington campus, and said, um, and he's about 5'10", and he said, uh, um, what would you say if I told you I was six foot five? Would you say I was wrong? And they said, well, um, if, you, if you felt like you were six foot five, maybe, you know, I, I think I, you know, we, I, I can go along with that. Then he said, what, what if I told you I was uh, a Chinese woman? Well, you know, if you really wanted to identify as a Chinese woman, I guess, I guess that would be okay. He went through about five of these things, and it was like, it was bizarre. Nobody wanted to say he was wrong. Nobody would say you're a five foot ten white guy, and, and you're not going to fit in a six foot, you know, it's just bizarre. Nobody would say anything. That's the absurdity that we have in this whole tolerance Christian Smith wrote a book, Soul Searching, and he writes that most Christian young people today prefer to use the word God when referring to the person they believe in. Why? Why? Because most everybody believes in a supreme being of some sort, whether or whoever he or she may be. The use of the word God is politically correct, and typically using God is inoffensive. On the other hand, if you say that you worship Jesus, it labels you as intolerant, narrow-minded, and bigoted because Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. Thus, millennials use the word God instead of the word Jesus. And of course, the problem is that the word God has been redefined and can mean just about anything. The name Jesus cannot. That's why we need to use the name of Jesus. Those are just six gods in America. God comes first. I am the Lord your God. I am your personal God. You are to have no other gods before me. It's all about relationship. God wants relationship with you. But in order for that to happen, God comes first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you don't pull any punches. You say it as it is. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us understand that, that when we get this part of our relationship right with you, and we begin to worship you as the one true God and get that perspective, that, that all other parts of our life fall into place. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you'll give us courage. I pray that you'll give us the ability to identify in our own personal lives other gods that we need to put aside that we'll be able to, to, to see in our culture the other gods that are demanding attention and we'll have wisdom. God, that we will have courage to stand up for Jesus Christ. We won't be intimidated, but that we will stand 
for our one true God through Jesus Christ. And we thank you in Jesus' name.